are in 1 John chapter 4. And I want to start with a question. Not, not to intimidate or make anyone, you know, wince, but it's a serious question. But there are a lot of serious things addressed in God's word, but I never see, this is one thing I love about Jesus. He knew exactly what he was getting into when he came down to earth. And yet we never see him shy away from threats. We never see him intimidated with dread or fear. We see him stand or sit boldly and confidently face to face with his opposition, but his confidence was there because his life, we see in John 2, 24, was entrusted to the Father. No, that verse isn't up there. That just came to me. He was entrusted to the Father, which is why he was able to love and speak the truth the way he was, which is why he was able to live the way he was because his confidence was in the love of his Father, was in the truth of the Spirit. But with that... <clears throat> Here's a question for us to consider. What is the greatest threat to the church today? What is the greatest threat to the church today? There's a lot of things going on right now. You know, we remember 2020, shutdowns. We could, we could go through a list of things. But I'll say this, I'm wholly convinced, as I believe most, if not all of you, are that the greatest threat to the church is not persecution. It's not persecution of the body of Christ, it's the perversion within the body of Christ, which is what John continues to address throughout his letter to the church here in 1 John. Perversion within the body of Christ, you might call it, we have called it heresy. Persecution is painful but it's powerful in purifying the body of Christ and producing life in others. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the gospel. And we see within the first few hundred years of the church, there was persecution we haven't seen like that since really now. We're seeing persecution in the church against the church today like we haven't seen since the early formative years of the church, which is interesting to me. And what do we see happen with the church as the persecution came against the body of Christ, the church grew, the church spread. Even though many, some could say countless numbers of men and women, children, were slaughtered, were, were killed in the name of Jesus, and yet the gospel spread, the church grew. Persecution's not the threat, though. Perversion within the body of Christ is. The heresy at work in John's day, and we're seeing it today in ours as well, is Gnosticism. Gnosticism might be an old word, um, but it, it's still prevalent today. As Paul made his way to Jerusalem for the last time, we read in Acts 20, 17, that he called to him the elders of the church there in Ephesus. And when they had come to him, he said to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul writes, or Paul says to the church, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Here's another question. How did Satan deceive Adam and Eve in the garden? He undermined the character of God. He didn't come with swords. He didn't come intimidating them with a physical power. He came intimidating them with lies. He caused Eve to question what she believed. And he subtly, he gave her 99% truth, 1% lie, right? You've heard the, the metaphor many times. None of us would eat a platter of brownies I say this seriously, none of us would eat a platter of brownies if you knew there was even a speck of animal poop in it, right? You're like, whoa, he just said that. Yeah, think about it. Now, you might come and cut the brownie and hold it and smell it. You might even accidentally taste it without knowing first, and it might completely taste and smell like a brownie, but the moment you find out that there's something in there that's polluted, you'd spit it out. You might throw up. You'd throw it away. You might get angry at the person who gave it to you. This is how the enemy works. He corrupts from within. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It sounds like such an elemental truth. So simple. And it is. But there's a reason John constantly addresses the church as children, little children. We need to remember that whether we're this high or this high, whether we've got a full head of hair, white hair, no hair, it does not matter how old we think we are. In the eyes of God and in the spiritual sense, we are children. Now the question is, are we a child with a father who cares for us, who protects us? Or are we orphans without care and protection? Or are we maybe playing a rebellious child? Yeah, we have a father, but we wanna do things our own way. There's a reason we're also referred to in the church as sheep. I've heard over the last few years, more and more people <laughs> accuse folks, don't be a sheeple, don't be a sheep. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what God calls us. That doesn't mean we're weak, but in our weakness, he's made strong. My confidence cannot be in what I know. I cannot put my confidence in what I can bring to the table. My confidence has to be in God, my heavenly father. Otherwise, I'm a sheep without a shepherd. I'm a child without a father. And we need to remember who we are because of whose we are, and Paul makes it clear. Everything else boiled down, it comes down to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ, which is significant, as I'll share here in a second, and him crucified, literally, not apparently, not mystically, really and truly. Would you look at uh, verse one with me here in 1 John 4? He writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that is, it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, 
because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Here in verse one, he says, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are savage wolves. There are ravenous wolves. Jesus used that term, ravenous wolves. The word here, believe, obviously we think, well, that means to put faith in, which we would be correct on. But it also means to entrust. And I like this. And this is what I'm gonna camp on a little bit here. It means to give credit to. We don't think of faith that way. We don't think of belief that way. We think, I believe in God. And we don't even think about what that actually means. But you give credit to things that you put faith in. You believe things that you put credit to. You give credence to. So if our faith in Jesus is polluted with spirituality, other spirituality, we're not gonna clearly see the truth from the lies. Just like, I should go back to the brownie example. We cannot live spiritually polluted lives. Followers of Jesus, church, we have made a grave error. Many of us have given credibility to other spirits in addition to Jesus. At some point in our lives, I would hazard a guess many of us here, if not most of us, have done that in some way, shape, and form. 1 Corinthians 10, 21, Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Did you know that there's a growing movement? I hate that word more and more, movement. I understand where people come from, but there's a lot that comes behind it. But there is a, spirit, a growing dark spirituality up in the northern Midwest, almost northeast. There's a lady, and I'm not gonna mention her name because it doesn't need to be said. It's not worth giving credence to. But did you know there's a growing people who think you can be a Christian witch? That's a real thing. It's what I'm talking about. We think we can take communion here, and then we can also dip our hand in the cauldron, and, and it's all good. Israel made this mistake. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Israel made this mistake in Exodus 32, verse one through four, the golden calf. They didn't make a golden calf to worship another god, though. They made a golden calf to represent the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nehemiah 9.18 explains that. And God had already told them explicitly, do not make an image to represent me. That's pagan worship. That's idolatry. And I see more and more within the church, at least here in this country, and I think at large, where we as a church are adopting forms of worship that are pagan in their roots to worship God with. God doesn't want to, he doesn't want us to worship him the way the world worships their gods. We're set apart, consecrated, just like God set Israel apart. Our worship, what we do, our culture, our values should be distinctly different. Otherwise, how can we be the light of the world if our light looks like the darkness. 
Israel, later on, welcomed other forms of worship into their fellowship of faith. So they didn't say no to God. They just went, we love God and fill in the blank. We see that in Numbers 25. They were deceived by Balaam. All this to say, do not add to or take away. Don't mix with or join your pure faith in Jesus Christ with another gospel, which is what Paul talks about in Galatians 1. Don't mix it with other philosophies or spiritualities. We cannot do that. I want to ask another question, but I don't want anyone to raise their hands. Without raising a hand, how many of us in our lives have gone to a psychic, a palm reader, or a medium, a spiritist? How many have used Ouija boards, tarot cards, cosmic crystals, or even out of foolish curiosity, played games to conjure spirits or ghosts? You, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I can tell you I have done that as a, when I was younger, not knowing it. We always like a thrill. Why do people like to get around the fire and talk about scary stories? We like the excitement. We like the thrill. But what are we entertaining? Many are entertaining spirits of Wicca, astral projection, manifestation, and a lot of this more and more within the younger groups are experiencing this, entertaining this, giving credence to these other spirits through YouTube, through Instagram, through TikTok. I have, I've taken recordings on my phone going through, and I go, oh my goodness. And it's loud, it's unabashed, it's unapologetic. And young people are fascinated and being drawn to it. And many within the church, and they'll tell you, I'm a Christian, but they also do this. We have to be on our guard, not with fear, again, but to be wise and discerning, testing the spirits. A lot of people are doing this. I have to say this because I forgot to mention it. A lot of folks within the church are doing this for more knowledge. Again, it's not, I reject God outright. It's, I believe this and this. Well, to do and this is to say no to this. We see, it. Huh, this is getting controversial even as I'm about to say this. But within marriage, there's another controversial thing. The enemy's doing everything he can to undermine, dilute, dismiss, and diminish what God has made, what the truth is. But if I live my life like that with my wife, I won't say her name because I've been warned that every time I mention her name, I'm gonna owe her you know, a, a buck or so. Now everyone's looking at her. <laughs> anyway, if I live my life like this in my relationship, in my marriage with my wife, she wouldn't stick around and I wouldn't want her to. I love my wife and this woman and this, this person. That's, that's unfaithfulness. That is adultery and spiritual adultery is idolatry. Paul or John is warning the church to be careful, test the spirits. Be careful, don't be afraid, but be careful, be wise, be discerning. When we're looking for other additional spiritual knowledge, we give these spirits credibility. And when we do this, by the way, that word belief comes up again here. When we do this, we open ourselves up, knowingly or unknowingly, to deceptive doctrines of demons. It's deceitful. It doesn't come right out and scare you like a monster behind a bush. These spirits come out disguised as spirits of light. 
That's how Satan presents himself, as an angel of light, and his servants, ministers of righteousness, so-called, but they're not. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul says, the Spirit explicitly says in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, teachings of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience like a branding iron, who forbid marriage, abstain from foods God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Hmm. Speaking of marriage, marriage, as I've already mentioned, is being muddled in our society. And as it gets muddled, it redefined, ultimately, it's rendered meaningless. What will be the point of marriage when it means anything to anyone? Paul just said it, who forbid marriage. Who forbid marriage. Did you know that there are some voices out there now who are promoting a message that for you to enjoy, appreciate, and value one man and one woman is hateful? It's bigotry to believe that? Mark my words, that day is coming where marriage will be demonized in our culture. I believe that. Marriage promotes having children. What have we heard being preached against that? More and more are preaching that we need to stop having children. Why? Because our, our human existence is a threat to the environment. That's the message. But this environment, if we believe God, we believe what he says, Genesis 1 through 2 makes it really clear, he created this environment as our habitat. I love when, when Rick went through it recently. I'd never seen it this way. Why does humanity, why is humanity the last cre creature, creation made? In the same way, if I'm gonna buy fish and, and bring them home as a pet, I'm not gonna just dump the fish into an empty tank. They'll die. They need an environment. They need a habitat. They need a home to be able to live and thrive in. God gave us this planet for us to care for, to cultivate, now, aside from trying to extend abortion beyond birth, many who sub subscribe to environmentalism, not all, and again, I think there are many in the church who subscribe to it and don't actually believe or don't actually realize what it is they're subscribing to, now also are saying that meat consumption is a curse. It's bad. It's evil. Meat is bad. The industry is bad. Why? Because cow byproduct contributes to climate change. And if I sound crazy, go, if you haven't heard, go check out what's happening in the Netherlands. It's happening. And this, I mean, I remember writing this up going, this feels so ridiculous, so silly. But this is the reality that we're living in. Why? Why are we where we're at now? Cam and I, I'll pay you for that later watched a movie, raise your hand if you've ever watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Portier. Yeah, some great actors, right? Catherine Hepburn. I'd never seen it all the way through, and I'm watching it, and by the end, I remember going, I, I, growing up, I've always had this unknowingly assumption that the generations gone by we're the God-fearing generations, and where we're at has just gotten so far from that. And yes, we've gotten far from that, but it had to start somewhere. 
at the end of the movie, and if you're, if you're gonna hear what I'm about to say, go, really? Maybe go back and listen to it. There, there are humanistic philosophies that are being preached throughout the movie. And I'm thinking, this was in the 60s. There's some really interesting themes. There is some comedy. But I, re I remember watching this. I'm going, wait a minute. These are the, these are the, this is the generation of my grandparents. They should be God-loving, God-fearing people. And some of you might be going, Jake, you're so naive. Yeah. <laughs> but it had to start somewhere. We're not where we're at today out of nowhere for no reason. We got where we're at because of what we have involved ourselves in, opened ourselves up to. Going back to the cows, we've seen a push for plant-based foods in the name of being healthier. But it doesn't take long. You can scratch it with a fingernail to see really quickly that the real goal here is to reduce the effect of climate change. Environmentalism is a religion. It's a spirituality. We need to know that. We need to be aware of that truth. It is not, it's not separate from a belief. It is a belief. Let me just ask kind of a common sense question. How is eating highly processed and, un and unnatural wannabe meat product healthier than eating untampered meat on unprocessed veggies? But again, to subscribe to what I just said, you've got to actually believe Genesis. I believe that what we have naturally was made by our supernatural father for our natural bodies. And what do we do? We come in and go, nah, thanks, we know a better way. And then we take what he made and we twist it and try and make it into something else. We see it in marriage. We see it in families. We're seeing it manifested even in our diets. Now, let me make this clear. God doesn't condemn vegetarianism. He's not against it, and I don't think it's a sin to be a vegan. The question is why? Why are we eating that way? Why are we living this way? Why do we have the relationships that we do the way they are? What's behind it? The belief is what guides and influences the behavior. I mean, Genesis 9, I'll read it here in a second, but before the flood, God was the one that created vegetarianism, plants, nuts, seed, fruit. We didn't eat meat. God did not condone that. But in Genesis 9, verses three through seven, God says to Noah, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. At that point, God says, meat's on the menu. But if you read verses really four through six, he gives a specific prescription as to how to do it. It's humane. There's a godly way to do everything in our life. So oftentimes we extricate our, our faith as a, a spiritual thing and then our mundane day-to-day -day lives is another thing. But that's called secularism. We don't separate them. We don't section them out. My faith in Jesus should influence every aspect of my life. The world says meat consumption is evil. God says use and enjoy it my way. The world says love and marriage are fluid. Jesus says I define it. Genesis 1:27, Matthew 19:4, Ephesians 5:22 through 33. The world says more children threaten the environment. God says fill it with people. People aren't bad. People are precious. We were made 
as image bearers of God. So then, going back to verse one, how do we, as John puts it, test the spirits to see if they're from God or not? How? People are always asking that. Okay, so that's, that's the truth. That's the reality. You just made a statement. Great. Tell me how this works. How do we do this? In Acts 17, we read, the brethren immediately, the church, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. The Bereans tested Paul's spirit with the spirit of the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All of this is inspired. We have to know it and we have to believe it because if we don't believe it, our attitudes, our behaviors, our choices and decisions in life will reveal that. It's one thing to tell our kids about God. It's another thing to live our life in God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. How do you define what good is? When the young rich ruler came to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus doesn't even answer his question first. He says, you call me good. Only God is good. Goodness is defined by God, not by me, not by us, not by civilization, not by society, by God. He made it. It's from him. John, also, if you look at verse one, he doesn't say test the spirits to see if you like them or not. He doesn't say test the spirits to see if you vibe with them, align with them. He says test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That's also an important thing. We test all things against God's word because his word is truth. He has to be the bedrock of yours and my foundation. He has to be, because if he's not, we're like the person on the shore trying to build a house on the sandy beach. And when the storms come, and they've been coming, and they're gonna come more and more intense, the winds are gonna blow, the water's gonna crash on that flimsy foundation, and the ruin will be great of our lives if we don't found ourselves in the faith of Jesus, who is the Christ. It's so simple, and yet, we so easily stray from it, which is why we need to be in his word on a daily basis. Give us this, our daily bread. First point here, God's word is the standardized test. And I know that as I say that to a lot of you, I'm, I'm repeating things you already believe. But I want us to know that, and it needs to be who we are. This is what forms us. God's word is what inspires us. Now look at verse two with me. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Seems simple enough, right? And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. 
You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. How do we tell the difference between the spirit of God and the spirit of this age? But before I get there, John, right here in verse two, he says, by this you know the spirit of God. He says spirit one, two, three, four, or it's implied four, four times. Spirit, 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 spirit. First thing, we, we have to have the Holy Spirit in us. Without the Holy Spirit, we're just a bunch of theologian or, you know, well, filter. I almost said something. I don't want to offend anyone. I'll just say this. If all you do is open the Bible to read it for information, then you're not going to get anything worthwhile out of it. We see that demonstrated horribly, unfortunately, by the Pharisees who read and studied the Bible better than anyone else in their day and age, better than most of us. And yet they were completely blind when the word of God came and stood in front of them. They knew the word, but they didn't know the word. How can that be? Because they didn't do it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who makes God's word active and effective. Yes, God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, but it's his spirit that makes it active. It's his spirit that makes it effective. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 4, verse 12, Ephesians 6, 17. Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit is who guides us in all truth, John 16, 13. Not my knowledge of the word, the spirit. My knowledge has to be based on the spirit who the Spirit is revealing to me. And I love what, what, what Rick said not long ago. He guides us in all truth, but he can't guide me in truth I haven't taken in. How much truth do I spend on a daily basis absorbing, assimilating, consuming? Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6, which means the Holy Spirit reveals to us not some idea of truth. He reveals to us who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit enlightens us to know what Jesus and understand what Jesus is teaching us. It's not our version of the truth. It's our ability, it's our willingness to be open to the Spirit of Christ revealing to us who Christ is. Second thing that we need to really take stock of here is, and I've already said it, we have to apply God's written word. Everyone who confesses Jesus Christ has come in flesh. That's in there for a reason. Verse two, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Everyone who does not is not. Denying or distorting who Jesus is from the scripture is a dead giveaway of the spirit of Antichrist. For a long time, I've always thought the Antichrist is just one person, but it's a spirit that indwells this person. And John says in 1 John 2, 18, children, it's the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. We live in the last hour. And if this was almost 2,000 years ago, I would submit to you that we live maybe in the last couple minutes, if not seconds, before things radically change.
We have to be discerning. And discernment comes not by information about the Bible. It comes by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who helps us understand what God has said to us, what God has given to us. Antichrist is two words. Anti, which doesn't just mean opposed to. It means in place of. It means instead of. Literally counterfeit. And Christos means anointed, Messiah. There are other Christs being taught and preached and promoted, not just in the world, but within the church. We see large, old, mainline denominations giving over to this, believing this. The Antichrist spirit is believable because it disguises itself to look like Christ, not because it looks totally different from him. The Gnostics don't deny Jesus Christ outright, but they deceptively distort him. As Wiest writes, the Serinthian heresy, which was going on at John's day, also had much to say about the spirit. It boasted a larger spirituality. That already sounds progressive as I say it. Rob Bell, I believe in a greater spirituality, like your spirituality is limited, it's backwards, it's obsolete, it's outdated, it's not evolved. They boast of a larger spirituality. This Serinthianism denied the possibility of the incarnation and drew a distinction between Jesus and the Christ. There's a guy named Richard Rohr, and he's in league with people like Rob Bell, a Franciscan priest, or at least he was. And he believes this. I don't know if he ever refers to Serinthianism, but what he promotes today goes all the way back to the early days of the church. Today's Gnosticism is what we would call progressive Christianity. And it's not progressive. It's teaching this kind of stuff and other ideas and concepts like it, claiming to bring a new or higher understanding. Serinthianism says that Jesus and Christ are not the same. Richard Rohr talks about how Jesus was a man, but at his baptism, the Christ came on him. But before he died on the cross, the Christ left. It's this new age garbage that's infiltrating the church that is deceiving people to think that, oh, I have, because I was made in God's image, and then they extrapolate it from there, not according to God's word, but based on man's reasoning, oh, then all of us have a little bit of Christ in us. And if all of this was made by Christ, well then, Christ is in everything. Nature, the stars, all have Christ in them. That kind of stuff goes back to John's day. This is not new. This is an old heresy, and really it goes all the way back to the garden. Docetism, as you've heard recently over the last few months, teaches that Jesus is all spirit, no flesh. He just seemed that way. He looked fleshly, but that's it. He just looked fleshly. He wasn't actually in flesh, which totally denies the Gospels. And then we have something called Marcionism. Now, these are old heresies that go back to the early days of the church. And Marcionism is something I've heard pretty much my whole life within the church, that the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. That's not a new idea. That's an old one. All of this sounds like progressive Christianity today. I would call it old school Gnosticism. It's the same thing. They just change the name, but the, the inside of the shop, same contents, 
Same shopkeeper, the devil's behind the table going, what would you like? Oh yeah, no, this is, my, my name's not Satan. My name's Lucifer. Oh, oh, I watch a show called Lucifer on Netflix. I like that show. Tell me more. We're being lured into thinking that dark is light and light is dark and truth is lie and lie is truth. How can we know the difference? His word guided by his spirit. Folks, you've heard it said, and I'll say it again, if it's new, it isn't true. A new enlightenment, then it's not enlightening at all. It's blinding. Hebrews 13, eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Galatians 1, eight, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And we've said before, and so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Latter-day Saints, Mormons, are not Christians. It contradicts this message. I'm st I'm, I, every time I talk about Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, I remember a young man who in his senior year started coming to our youth group. And he started coming because he was interested in a girl. So she wasn't interested in him. She told me about him. She said, hey, he's coming. Awesome. We got to know each other. He, uh, he supposedly, I wasn't there, supposedly he prayed to receive Christ. I don't know if he was baptized. No, actually. Yeah, he was baptized. By the way, now he's on a, uh, his two-year Mormon mission trip because what he didn't tell me was not even a month after us talking and him so-called believing in Jesus, he had, there was the girl that brought him to youth group, he'd lost interest in because she made it clear, I'm not interested. So there was another girl that he knew at high school. Turns out she's Mormon. And through her, Mormon missionaries started coming to his house. And about a month and a half later, after him and I were getting to know each other, he let it slip that they'd been coming. I went, what? Really? And I said, dude, steer clear. If you're born again <laughs> by virtue of the picture Jesus paints, you're a baby in Christ. The last thing you need is to hear these guys come lie and deceive you. They're gonna twist things. And he said, okay. And then he kept on listening to them. Why? Because he was lured by this girl. Again, I go back to Numbers 25. Why did Israel fall into idolatry? The men of Israel were deceived by the allure of the women from the Midianites. That's how the enemy works. He uses things to deceive us, and usually what deceives us looks good. Go back to Genesis chapter three. Even Adam didn't eat the fruit because it looked nasty. They ate it because it looked good. Well, Eve ate it because she saw, yeah, they're... What, is, what this serpent is saying makes sense. And she'd already believed, she'd already been intimidated in her faith enough where she questioned what God said or whether or not what he said was even what she truly remembered. Mind tricks, battle in the soul. And so then she eats it. And I don't believe Adam was deceived. I think he just willfully, intentionally disobeyed God because why? He cared about what she would think, not what he would think. Well, I, I don't want to be at odds with my wife. I just got her. 
And so he goes along with her. She was deceived by Satan, and the rest is history. We need to be really careful about the gospel that is preached. But I'm giving you these verses, Hebrews 13, 8, Galatians 1, 8 through 9, because his word is the sword of the Spirit, and we need to be able to know it and use it effectively. Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. What did Jesus say? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are heavy, burdened, and weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. The ancient path is Jesus. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. Jesus. This Jesus. Not the Jesus of Islam. Not the Jesus of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or the witch Christians in Salem, Massachusetts, or any other Jesus. This Jesus. Now, if you're listening to this and you might feel a little unsure or you feel discouraged, don't lose heart. Yes, the darkness is dark, and I believe it's getting darker. But John reminds the disciple and the church that we have overcome. Look at verse four. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Little children of God overcome the biggest, meanest, ugliest giants of Satan, of the darkness. It doesn't matter how dark it is. If you're a child of light, light beats darkness every day of the week and twice on Sunday. But do we believe that? Do we live in that truth? Do we know that? What's interesting is this word overcome is mentioned six times in five chapters. First John mentions overcome more than any other book in the New Testament, second only to the book of Revelation. Revelation mentions it 17 times, overcome, overcome, overcome. This word in John's first letter is used more than any other book in the New Testament. It's also not past tense. When we read it, it says, and have overcome, but it's literally in the present, or I'm sorry, it's literally in the perfect tense, which means it's decisive and continuing. You have overcome, you are overcoming, and you will overcome. Ain't no one gonna come against God's children. And when, why? For the same reason Jesus said, the gates of hell, of Hades, will not overcome, what? The church. But not because the church is the thing. And the church is not an institution. The church is a body of believers, little children of God. And God said, these horribly powerful ugly, dark monsters will not overcome my little children because my little children listen to me. And I don't find it coincidental at all that the only book in the New Testament that mentions the word overcome more than 1 John is the book of Revelation. And Revelation starts out, chapters two through three, talking about the church. How does the church overcome the darkness, the spirit, the word of God, the love of God, the light of God, the truth of God? It's not coincidental to me. I don't think it's just a sense of irony 
that overcoming is mentioned in the book of Revelation more than any. And yet, many times when we think about the book of Revelation, we think about the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. And a lot of that takes time to describe that in detail. But remember from chapter one, the book of Revelation is not a revelation of the Antichrist. The book of Revelation is a revelation of the Christ, Jesus. And he ends up at the end of the book, if you don't know, spoiler alert, he wins. And so everyone with him overcomes the darkness. That's the power we have as little children of God. The darker this world gets in evil and violence, the more we overcome, not the less. That's not what his word says. And so I don't want us to be worried. I don't believe God gives us these things so that we're hopeless or we begin to despair. I don't want you to be worried or hopeless or despair. Maybe someone you know, or maybe you have been deceived. Remember what he says here. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The he is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who brings revelation of Jesus, Revelation 19.10. Here's some other scripture. If you're feeling intimidated, hopeless, trepidatious in your faith, Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. I don't vindicate myself, he vindicates me. 2 Corinthians 10, three, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you, and he will not forsake you. The Holy Spirit empowers you to overcome. That's the second point. His word and his spirit. It might be a broken record, but I'm gonna beat that horse dead because we can't hear it enough. His word, his spirit. His word, his spirit. Look at verse five with me. They are from the world, Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And immediately as I read that, you might go, as I go, I ask, well, what about the people who claim to say they're from God? Oh, if you won't listen to me, then you're, you're obviously not of God. Well, how can I know if who I'm listening to is of God? Well, if you're a child of God, you know that and you have his spirit in you. But again, we test it to the scriptures. That's why John says, test to see whether they are from God. I don't, God doesn't want us to lose heart as children of God. But as a child of God, you will be misunderstood. You will be reviled. You will be rejected because you believe and speak Christ. And we shouldn't be afraid of it, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it, and we shouldn't be shocked by it. Why? Because that's exactly what they did to Jesus. 
the work, Jesus came into the world and the world did not re receive him. He came to his own and they didn't receive him. People who should have known better than anyone else were part of the group that got him crucified. Now let me ask us this. Did that stop Jesus from boldly speaking the truth and loving unconditionally? And I think that's, we will be able to live boldly and love unconditionally when we are thoroughly convinced of who he is and who that makes us. Then I don't have to be intimidated. Well, this, I might, you know, I've heard this for a long time and I understand where it comes from. I gotta be careful not to push this person away from Jesus. No, I have to be careful to listen to my father and do what he says. There are plenty of people Jesus spoke to and because of what he said, they were repelled. That's because they were of the world. God's, God's drawing a line in the sand. Who will come to me and who will oppose me? That's not, my job is not to determine whether or not this person's gonna come to Christ or not. My job is to simply deliver the message of truth and to love them as Jesus has loved me and leave the results to him. We don't have to be worried about, well, if I say this, oh, that might be the wrong thing. Let's clear up all the confusion. Does God want you to say it? If you know that, then you have confidence in what you say. Yeah, Jesus promised, when I come, I come to bring not peace, but the sword. Son against father, daughter against mother. In our own households, there's going to be a division, but the division is through the sword of the spirit, the spirit of peace. And we don't need to, we don't need to forfeit or give up our peace because the world around us is saying, you're hateful and insensitive. And, and look at what the church has done has th throughout history. Well, I can't speak for everybody else in history, but I can speak from who he is. And right there, I would direct people's attention to Christ, not the church. The church doesn't save people. Jesus Christ does. The church is made up of saved people who want to invite other people to know that saving grace. I'm not perfect. None of us are. But I know someone who is. And he will love us with a perfect love. And so we don't need to be intimidated or afraid of speaking that truth boldly. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, with good. Jesus said to the young rich ruler, only God is good. Yes, many will reject us for our faith in Jesus, but others will receive him. So again, don't kowtow to the intimidation, the lies, the deceitful threats that you're judging people just for lovingly speaking the truth of the gospel. It will offend. Paul says that. To those who are perishing, the aroma of Christ smells like death. But to those who are being saved, it's sweet. It's the perfume of Christ. It's life eternal. We do need to remember though, and I will say this, that the goal of sharing his truth is love. 1 Timothy 1.5. So when we share the truth with people, we don't do it beating them over the head with it. Because loving kindness is what draws us to repentance. But loving kindness doesn't kowtow, doesn't push you over. It's not questioning whether or not it's love and truth. When we speak the truth, our motivation is to love the person. 
but this wicked world is trying to convince you and I that what is good is bad, what is light is dark, and what is truth is a lie, Isaiah 5.20. Do not believe the spirit of this world. Believe in the word of God who gave you his spirit. Listen and believe him. I know I'm just like, this is, it's just like fundamental things that I'm pointing out, but I want to, I, I want to exhort all of us, myself included, to take hold of these personally, not to just hear them mentally, but believe them in our heart and soul. Look at verse seven with me. How are we doing? Okay. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Going back to verse seven, he calls us beloved and he says, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love is defined by God. God is the definition of love. And then he goes on and says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. John continues to reiterate this truth over and over and over, but he's not a broken record because as children, we daily need it repeated. We need to be always reminded so that we're mindful to live by it daily. Every day, when you wake up, before you go to bed, let me say this. Born again children of God love God's children. It proves we know God because we are begotten of God through his only begotten son, Jesus, who is the Christ. How do you know you're a child of God? Do you love God's children? This is why it breaks my heart when I see more and more people, my generation and younger, reviling the church. I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Why? They're a bunch of hypocrites. Well, you better not come. Don't add to our numbers then, right? Jesus loves the church. Jesus came to die for the church. He came for the sins of the world, but the church is his bride, the body of Christ. We're precious to him. We're not perfect, but he's perfecting us. Look at verse nine. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Mormons believe and teach that Jesus is the son of God. And so is Lucifer. They teach that Lucifer and Jesus are spiritual brothers. That's heresy. Why? Because he says God sent his only begotten son. That's singular. That's one. There's not many only begotten. There's only one begotten. 
and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. And this love of God is not of the world. It's not a human achievement. I hear this a lot too, especially on social media, that we need to evolve in our love. No, we don't. We need to grow in his love. We need to abide in his love because his love perfects us. We don't perfect love. He perfects us. That's what God's word says, which gives me confidence because if, if it's up to me to define and perfect love, man, I'm already a confused mess. I don't know if I want chicken and salad or if I want steak and potatoes. Do I want chocolate ice cream or chocolate cake? I change my mind all the time. Do I want to take a shower or not take a shower? I don't know. I took a shower, don't worry. But we, I mean, you go into grocery stores and you can spend, at least I do, spend forever. It's like Cam gives me a list of like two or three things and I go in and I'm like, how can I perfect this list? An hour later, no, not really an hour. <laughs> Cam gives me an eyebrow, really, Jake? I don't know if you are stretching it. We're so subject to be deceived, to let us be led astray, to be distracted. God's love is constant and true. It's not a human achievement. This love in God's children is a result of God who showed his love through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, so that we might abide in this supernatural love now as his children. It's this great exchange again. I can't get over it. It, it is so profound to me that God would give up his only begotten son to die my death so that I could then become his child. He became the criminal so that I could become the child. That love is not of this world. This lo the love of the world is we accept all except anyone who doesn't agree with us. That's not tolerance, folks. God tolerates. How do I know? We're still on earth. He hasn't wiped us out. That's how I know. Because God sent his son. God didn't say, all right, world, I am God. And because I am, you deserve, I deserve what you owe me. So this is my son. Now, ascend the steps of heaven and prove yourself worthy. He did not do that. He came down to us to show us his love. Because we don't know love apart from him. Because I'm not love. He is love. And he went, this is who I am. And now this is what I'm doing for you. And now I offer to you freely. Yeah, but God, you don't know who I am. Yes, I do. You don't know what I did. Yes, I do. That's not the question. The question is, will you receive me? If you will, that's gone. It's gone. As deep as the deepest parts of the sea, which scientists still have not plumbed the depths of, he says, that's how far I, I sink your sin. As far as the east is from the west, that's the love of God. That's the love that the children of God have to offer the world. When we love unconditionally, when we forgive seven times 70, when we love God's family, people outside the family of God see that and go, I wanna have dinner with that family. I wanna go hang out with that family. Man, I wish I was a part of that family. When they see the love of God that was born through Jesus Christ, which makes you and I children of God. We know this, 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
God has and continues to use our broken lives and situations to reveal his redeeming and undying powerful love. It doesn't justify my sin, but he goes, look how great I am. My goodness will overcome your evil, Jake. My love will overcome your sin and your hate and your evil. He overcomes. And so if I want to overcome in this life, I got to align my life with his. John chapter nine, verse one. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from faith. I'm sorry. (laughs) As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man has sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied it to applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated is sent. So he went away. He was sent and washed and came back seeing, verse 39. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. If you're listening to this right now and you don't believe in Jesus and you think you can see, you're blind. Those who come to see recognize their blindness and finally go, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, save me. He just asks us to come to him like children, recognizing their need for a father. He'll do the rest. I don't have to work on becoming, on making myself righteous. He makes me righteous and out of my identity in him, his righteousness flows out of me. I don't have to earn his love. I have to receive his love. And when I receive it, then I have it. Now I have something to give. Jesus said to his guys before he sent them out on their first mission trip, freely you receive, freely give. So the question is for us in the church, have we received? And if you have, I'm gonna quote my brother here, how much would you like? The fullness of God is limitless. How much do you want? And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. He doesn't go, this is all of me, take it all. He says, this is all of me. How much would you like? And I'll give as much as you ask for. No more and no less. That's the love of God. 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word is important because God doesn't atone our sins. He doesn't cover our sin. He doesn't ignore it like he did with Israel. Sacrifice these animals and I'll ignore it for now. I'll put it off to the side. He doesn't dismiss my sin. He purges us clean of sin entirely. That's propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God, taking on the sin of the world so that anyone who would believe in him would no longer have sin. When he looks at you, if you're a child of God, he wants us to come to him with a clean conscience. But if you died today, a child of God, and you just said something mean to your wife or you were a jerk to your husband, he doesn't go, oop, you had a sin on your record right before you died. Sorry, you're out. That's not propitiation. Hebrews 10, 4 through 14, I won't read it, describes and defines the difference between atonement and propitiation. And I would encourage you to know that if you don't already. Romans 6, 10, the death that Jesus died He died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. There's a difference between practicing sin and accidentally committing sin. Children of God don't live in sin. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Continuing on, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8, 14 through 16. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. Notice, he doesn't say Jesus is one of the sons of God. He says, the son of God. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Children of God, we love as God has loved us. Now, if you're hearing me going, you're a little repetitive. Yes, and so is John. How many times has he said God is love? More than once. We need to hear it repeatedly. If God so loves me that he gave his only begotten son to die for me, then I cannot love you any less. If he gave his most precious to die for me, how could I not love you the same way? That's the love of God's children. This doesn't make his love imperfect as if it's incomplete, but his love becomes complete in me as I live by his perfect love. God's abiding love perfects us. That's the next point. I'm actually on the last few points of the teaching, so if you're like, I can't keep up, or I'm overwhelmed, or I'm ready to be done, hang with me. God's abiding love perfects us. 1 John 4, 17, by this, Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Haven't we just read that? First John chapter three, verse two. Beloved, now we are children of God and it hasn't appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And we see this repeated in verse 17. When Jesus appears, we will be like him because we see him. We will see him as he sees us now. And so to truly see Jesus for who he is, we must receive and abide in his love now. Abide in him now and he will appear to you soon. Abide now and his appearing will come. As we do, we will have confidence to enter what 1 Timothy 6.16 says is unapproachable light. The light of God is unapproachable. That's holy light. That is supernatural light. Verse 18. There is no fear in love. Sit on that for a second. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. How many times has John said that? 
I love because he loved me first. I love you as he has loved me. Children of God ought to love each other as he has loved us. Over and over and over and over. John, this old, I love the way Rick put it, kind of pictured him. John at this point in his life is in his 90s. Old man. And they go, why is John who walked with Jesus, the beloved disciple, tell us, what did Jesus teach you? Give us the wisdom of God. Love each other the way he loves you. We could spend the rest of eternity on that. And you might feel like, yeah, Jake, you're you're talking for eternity on that thing. Hang on. To have or live with fear is an imperfect love because faith works by love, Galatians 5, 6. Romans 8, 15, you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons, ladies included, because it's position, it's positional. I'm gonna say it again. I'm I'm so glad Rick made that clear. It's positional. (laughs) I feel like I'm talking like Rick. I'm me, I'm no Rick. But if I gotta be the bride, you gotta be the sons. And it's the position, okay? We don't need to see it through eyes of flesh, but through eyes of the spirit. No one is more dear to me on this planet than that woman right there. That's, that, well, that is an honored position to be in, right, Cam? And there are many children. I, I see the gross, the gross children out here, right here, that family, sweet. And by the way, thanks for having Ezra with you guys this Sunday. That's fellowship. But there's not another son right there. That's my only son. That's my Judah. It's positional. That's how precious we are to him. Do you believe in God's love more than your fears? Is there any part of you that is afraid of God's judgment on you? Because we are to love God with a holy fear. Yeah, a holy fear. That's respect for his power and his position in our lives. But that's not a terror of his punishment. My kids, my kids don't live. Thanks, bud. My kids don't live in fear of me, but they have respect for me, of me. John 8, 10, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Jesus didn't accept the adulterous woman's sin. He redeemed her from it. That's love. It doesn't apologize for the sin. It calls it what it is. And then he says, but I'm not attaching it to you if you'll receive the forgiveness. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's read this for our communion. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Second to last point, abiding love replaces fear with faith. Abiding love replaces fear with faith. And if you're like, Jake, my love's not perfect. I've got fear. That's okay. So do I. If I'm gonna be honest, I got some things that I gotta continue to work out. Some things that make me trepidatious. Things that if I'm gonna be honest with you, I start to feel intimidated by. But guess what? He's perfecting us now and will continue to because his love is perfect. 1 John 4.20, and this is where we end this morning. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Let that sink in. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother.
We're known by our love because God has known us by his love. We're known by our love because we're clothed by his love, which was given to us by Jesus Christ. I'm no longer seen in my filthy rags of sin. I'm now seen by the God Almighty by the robe of righteousness that his son just gave to me as a gift. And that's love. The love of God compelled Jesus to come to us, not demand us to come to him. He did the work to restore us to himself. He did the work to restore us to himself. He wasn't self-righteous, he was sacrificial. So I wanna read this last passage and give you this last point. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Matthew 5, 23 Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against them, they have something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And here's the last point. His unseen love is seen in our Lord love towards each other. His unseen love is seen in our love towards each other. There's a lot of things I said this morning, and I don't know where everyone's at, hearing God's word, hearing the things that were said, but if there's anything you wanna pray about, we would love to pray with you about that. Prayer team, if you'd come forward. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray, I ask, Father, that the things that you spoke would not be forgotten, and that you would consecrate these things, take them, and set them apart in our hearts and our minds. And I take confidence knowing that, Lord, your word does not return in void. And so the things that you spoke from your word by your spirit, they are and they will produce fruit. Help us to be patient little children waiting for you to produce things in our lives. And help us to find our confidence not in ourselves, but in you. Help us to walk by the clear, defining word of God and by the power of your spirit that we would be a church wholly filled to the fullness of Christ who came to love us with the supernatural love of God so that you would be our Father. We thank you and we praise you and we wanna sing a song of praise and welcome anyone who would like to pray with each other to do so now. Lord, in your name, amen. <laughs>